We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another national champion joining us this week. In fact, he is the two-time champion of Australia, won, won the national championship in 2014 and 2018, as well as the Australian Player of the Year in 2011, 2012, and 2015. He's also an author who co-authored Dismantling the Sicilian and has written for Chess Publishing and Chess Based Magazine, among other places. Uh, these days, he is retired from competitive chess despite being a relatively young man, and he is a trainer who works with adults and talented juniors alike. And I am excited to talk to him about his career and chess improvement. So let's bring in Grandmaster Max Illingworth. How are you, Max? I'm doing great. Thank you, Ben. So you're joining us from Vietnam, which surprised me. Could you um, enlighten our listeners? I, I think uh, a lot of listeners will have heard of you. Of course, you're quite active in the Facebook forums. Um, uh, your friend, uh, I am Cyrus Lakdawalla, has been on the show a couple times. And I know you guys co-founded the Endgame Studies 
group, and I know you're active in some other groups as well. So people may associate you with Australia, but could you uh, quickly uh, let our listeners know why it is that you are the first guest to be uh, joining us from Vietnam? Uh, yeah, sure. So basically, I came to Vietnam in uh, early 2020 is when I started living here. And the reason is because actually, uh, you know, my wife is Vietnamese. So I live with her and her family. And you know, we got married in late 2019. And so it became natural to kind of stay in and uh, live here as such. But I will be going back to Australia in uh, July of this year to live with uh, my parents. And obviously, my wife will be coming along as well. Excellent. And dare I ask how COVID has been in Vietnam? I haven't I haven't heard much in these parts about it. Uh, yeah, basically, there weren't any real issues with COVID in Vietnam because they already had the issues with the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. And they already knew how to deal with the pandemic and stop it you know, spreading on a large scale. That's good to hear. I'm, yeah, I'm glad, glad to hear that um, you're mostly staying safe. So are people wearing masks there or is it, did it just never get in? I mean, it got in once or twice, but actually it was very well contained. You know, it was very strong quarantine. Everyone was wearing the masks and, well, I mean, everyone kind of sort of followed the health precautions that stopped the virus spreading any further. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And hopefully we can all, all put this behind us soon as we record. The transmission rates are going down, but there are a couple variants that are a bit scary. So um, you can never relax in, in, in life as in chess. Um, but of course, I want to get to chess, Max, because um, obviously um, we've we've uh, batted a few subjects around on Facebook here and there. Um, I'm a fan of your work. And I know that when I interviewed uh, Grandmaster Peter Wells, um, and Barry Heimer about their um, their chess mindset book, um, a book that uh, a lot of um, a lot of listeners really enjoyed that interview, and I know a lot of people have really enjoyed their book. And I know that you've been kind of getting into chess psychology, and it's been a theme lately here on the podcast. I've had a few uh, cognitive psychologists on, so could you tell us how how you've uh, learned to think about mindset in chess, both in your own career and now as you transition to a full time trainer? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, the first part of it, I think was kind of realizing from my own experience playing how much an impact that it had on the game that I could, you know, play a game. And if I was not in the right mindset, I would just play much lower than love I knew I was capable of. Whereas conversely, if I had a very strong mindset in the game, it was sort of really helping. It just helped me to play at my absolute best level uh, at that time. So I think I kind of, yeah, realized it from my own experience first of all and like my coach Sam had also observed this as well that there were times where my mindset was really strong and I would just have this amazing performance and then there were times I wouldn't be very good my performance would not be good at all so I think my first experience and first curiosity was definitely from a competitive perspective as a player but then I kind of started to research it more and more deeply kind of starting in 2017 where I sort of read different books and kind of do different research online and I kind of realized like that mindset was just a very important component of achieving, of making the most of your kind of raw sort of ability as such. And it's something I think is just continually a, a work in progress. So like every single day, you know, you're doing something that either is supporting you towards your goals or is sort of moving you further away. And you know, that's part of the, the challenge of life. That's interesting. And tw 2017, if I'm not mistaken, that's the year that you played in the World Cup, which is one of my favorite tournaments as a as a chess fan. And of course, 2018, one of the years where you won the Australian National Championship. So 
Um, I'm curious at that time, Max, if you if you sort of felt like you were approaching it more as a competitor or already thinking about it um, as a coach, or was it more just sort of human interest and not so um, prescriptive, I guess you could say? I think it was a combination of all three, where definitely there was a sort of frustration at that time in 2017, where I kind of got the grandmaster title, but I hadn't really got over 2,500. My team have a couple of really good performances and like one really bad performance. So it kind of, it seemed undo a lot of the work from, uh, you know, from beforehand. So I kind of, yeah, had it from this day where it started, but also yeah, just as I got more and more into it, I got more and more interested. And also I think a lot of it did come from kind of realizing, I guess, some of the limitation times with coaching that, you know, there were certain cases where you could say, you know, all the right things to do for the student, but there'd be something that might stop the student from achieving the sort of their full potential, like some sort of mental blocker. So I kind of realized in order to really help my students at the highest level, I had to also coach them through how to kind of have a champion's mindset as well. Gotcha. And can you think of any, like, were there any specific um, mental blocks in, in your own game? You mentioned sort of an inconsistent performance. Did you, were you able to pinpoint what you felt was was behind that? Yeah, I think there were a few different factors. I mean, I think definitely one was like, I think a very important thing at the very top level is being able to kind of separate your emotions from the, uh, like from the game, like just be completely sort of cold and so completely absorbed in the game. And I think that for me somehow, like I don't think I managed to do that fully consistently where there were sometimes I was too focused on the results at the expense of thinking about the actual position or times I would sort of, yeah, kind of let myself get into my own head. So I think that was something that I kind of struggled with a bit as a player. And you know, it might also be one reason why probably my Blitz and Rapid has sort of been stronger than my Classical in general, because like in Blitz and Rapid, I don't really have time to like think about things and kind of to get bored and sort of worry about things. Whereas in Classical, I know it's like kind of, yeah, so I was less, got less and less kind of engaged with it, I think in the last, let's say, couple of years of, of me playing. Because kind of the reason I sort of stopped, uh, playing like in the first place, just realizing I wasn't really enjoying playing classical chess uh, at that time. Like I was sort of found, uh, well, I found other things were sort of more, uh, more interesting to me at this stage, let's say. Gotcha. Yeah. And I did notice that you're uh, currently around 2,800 blitz on uh, chess.com. So as you're retired from classical chess, is that something that you still work on? Or do you still play blitz frequently? Like what's the status of your online game as uh, the online game becomes more elevated in the chess world. Yeah, I remember for like uh, in 2010, 20 actually I spent quite a, a bit of effort trying to really get my blitz to a, a much higher level. You know, I actually managed to get, I think, 2950 on uh, on chess.com uh, as such. Uh, like that was sort of my, my peak rank that I achieved with some effort. Uh, and then, yeah, sort of, uh, well, I remember in 2020 I also ended up winning the Asian online nations rapid uh, event like this is a team event for australia and the australian team one and you know i was part of that winning team uh, having a really good performance in rapid but i think after that i kind of realized that yeah sort of even in terms of rapid and blitz i kind of felt myself moving in in different directions like actually in terms of my online chess like i mostly play crazy house nowadays like i play this very <laughs> just because i kind of just find like so different to uh to chess like so the variety sort of keeps me engaged in because it's one thing I found, like, one thing that was missing for me, uh, which I think happens to most uh, athletes when they retire, is that they sort of feel, okay, I don't have that sort of competitive thing, like, sort of pushing me and driving me forward a lot. And I sort of find that I still feel I've been looking for that thing, like, the perfect thing to replace it. And, yeah, at the moment, like, Crazy House is sort of that 
that kind of thing. They're saying, okay, I want to just get like as good as, as I can just for like the competitive reward. Cool. Yeah. And for listeners not familiar, Crazy House is one of the many what they call chess variants. I know that uh, chess.com has a nice interface for it. And basically the way it works is, correct me if I'm wrong, Max, because I played Bug House growing up, but I haven't... Uh, I haven't gotten addicted to the crazy house drug, but you, uh, you, when you capture your opponent's piece, you get that piece to place down on the board. Um, is that right? Yeah, basically it's like bug house, but only on one board only. So it means if you take the opponent's piece, you sort of get that piece in your color, in your hand, where you can drop it on the board later in the game. Right. Okay. And Max, when you play crazy house, do you come across a lot of other grandmasters, um, fellow crazy house aficionados? Uh, there are actually not very many from what I saw. Well, I've noticed that like the skill set for Crazy House is a little bit different for uh for chess, but I mean, there is actually one grandmaster like Nihal Serin who's like quite strong in it. Uh, in fact. <laughs> of course. So yeah, he's probably like yeah. the strongest grandmaster in Crazy House at the moment. But in terms of rankings, like the top players are usually like untitled or only like let's say NM to IM. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and listeners, be careful with these variants. I mean, they are fun, but if you have chess improvement goals, if you still if you're still an ambitious chess player, they can suck away a lot of time because they're almost uh, too much fun. Um, but let's bring it back to Blitz, uh, Max, because um, I do want to get a little more info on what you did do to improve. You mentioned it's kind of back on the back burner now, but obviously with a, a high of twenty nine fifty, that's amazing. And obviously, the higher you go, the the harder it can be to make incremental improvement. So when you were working specifically on, on your Blitz, what did you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, basically, like, that's also, like, back to my coaching uh, work as well, because I find, like, I sort of will often test ideas on my own game as well as doing before, and then once it worked best, I sort of suggest to other people. Uh, so for me, I remember one thing that really helped a lot when I was, like, at the sort of 2800 and sort of winding up 2950. Like, I managed to go up to 2800 to 2950 in, like, a few months of really like being serious about it basically like just by kind of really mastering like narrowing down one set of openings and just really mastering getting to know those positions very well is one thing that really helped and it's something that kind of seems like a lot of work but i found like if you play somewhat let's say systematic or let's say blitz kind of based systems so this can really be like very very effective and actually the systems i was playing at that time when i first got to 250 i was playing like the Londoners white and playing like the Accelerate Dragon and Benko as black. So like openings are not, let's say, like absolute mainline systems, but where you can like play the first 10 moves relatively quickly and get the same types of positions. And I mean, I could sort of like just basically learn from playing my own games and analyzing the games afterward. And then also like looking at what was being played at a high level in, uh, you know, like in our tournament games, like just basically going through the different games. And yeah, very quickly, I just felt very, very comfortable in these positions uh, as such. So it was like a big part of it. And I think that certainly spending a lot of time with the in the chess improvement system, you know, I founded this, uh, you know, this chess group. And I was also spending a lot of time answering people's questions and kind of analyzing different high level games. And I found all that analytical work really helped me to play much better myself. And a similar actually happened as well. I remember in 2018, like just before I'd won the Australian championship, I remember I had been spending a lot of time like doing analysis, like trying to help other other people improve and it kind of improved my own game as well is uh, what I found. Good stuff. So, I mean, and when I interviewed my friend Greg Shahadi recently, he's been working on his blitz game. I mean, he's around 2,700. So a fish compared to you, Max, but, uh, but strong compared to, um, 
to most people listening and certainly to myself. Um, he also mentions an emphasis on uh, openings, but I think that matters more at the higher level. So for, for listeners who are, say, um, you know, I don't know, below 2000, something like that, but are playing Blitz, which I think uh, below 1400, you maybe shouldn't even be playing that blitz, that much Blitz. But in any event, so for listeners at a lower level trying to improve their Blitz, do you think openings are as important or are there other things they should be working on, even if it's mainly their, their faster game that they're worried about at the moment? Yeah, in that case, I'd probably suggest what I did like to get from 2500 chess.com Blitz to like 2700 plus in, uh, in uh, 2016. And it's like in mind the ranks do kind of inflate to but back then like two seven hundred was like top thirty, whereas now I think top thirty is like three thousand and twenty-five or something. So like the margins go up, but what I did back then was I basically just did lots and lots of tactics solving. Where I remember I would just solve like hundreds of tactics piles every day using the different Peshka programs. Right. So I started just working through like the set of like ten thousand piles in CTR and the sort of programs that came with that. Because that was like a big turning point for me. Like I remember that before doing that, like my calculation was sort of not particularly strong as such. But then when I started doing this, I found I was seeing all the patterns very, very quickly. And I find at lower levels, a lot of the good blitz chess is just see who can sort of see the tricks and see the tactics kind of better and, you know, avoid big blunders. So that's pretty much what uh, what was the key for me. And I think that's probably the step that's kind of the key because it's only when I got to that two seven, I realized, okay, like just the tactics alone is not getting me there. Like I need to improve my understanding a lot as well and that's when sort of the opening started to work better when i already you know had the good tactics and calculation to to back it up cool yeah and i i saw an interview that you did with a friend of the show brian castro of uh better chess training and in it you mentioned that when you were when you were doing tactics you would often repeat them which is another kind of um common question that comes up some some trainers and obviously most famously the authors of the woodpecker method um, Axel Smith and Hans Tikkanen say that you should repeat patterns, but others just say, do the tactics, don't worry about repeating them. Um, so were you repeating them even during this period? And what's your general philosophy about uh, repetition of tactics in particular, um, as opposed to just uh, doing lots of them? Yeah, actually, I was uh, repeating them. And yeah, I think that, well, there are two key components I see to effective tactic solving. And you know, it's something I've not the first time mentioned this. Like the first key is sort of solving the puzzles by theme. So you can basically drill the same patterns in your head. Because like if you've gone through, let's say, 500 pins in a row, well, that's very likely you're going to see those pins almost without thinking when you get them in actual games. Like you'll just see the opportunities present themselves. But it's also important to kind of repeat the positions as well, like to repeat these theme puzzle sets so you can really get the positions in your long-term and the patterns in your long-term memory. Because you have to, you know, grandmasters mostly play from long-term memory. And I found that that basically doing this very repetitive kind of solving, but with the actual themes rather than just repeating the puzzles, but doing both of it, it kind of allows you to very quickly be able to play from a long-term memory in your games, at least for the particular themes that you're working through. Uh, and I found that the program that really helped me a lot with that was CTR, where basically for every time I kind of improved 400 points in one year, I'll attain the classical ratings when I was a lot younger almost every time it's because I was working through these Peshka programs quite a lot and it was really helping me to just kind of yeah, get the patterns in my head and to make sure they'd stay in my head. Okay, yeah, and CTR, for listeners who aren't familiar, they sell like PC discs that you can buy, but they also have a, a huge series of apps that I know I, I am, Kostya Kovutsky is a big fan of, 
Um, and um, when I interviewed uh, Mauricio Flores Ruiz, the author of Chess Structures, he said that just doing CTR like over and over again was the the single thing that got him um, much stronger at tactics. Although it's fairly, I mean, and if I believe it runs the gamut of skill levels as opposed to some other tactics recommendations you might come across. Is that is that your um, your perspective as well, Max? Yeah, I think the CTR is the most organized kind of puzzle set because there are definitely alternatives. Like I know, for example, League Chess now has a free sort of themed training feature because previously like the only way you could access the themed feature like was to pay, let's say, for a premiumchess.com membership or a premium chess tempo membership to be able to do the theme puzzle sets. But now there is actually a free option with the League Chess tactics. Uh, so it means that pretty much anyone can actually use this method of the themed uh, puzzle solving the one thing of Lee Chess, it has so many puzzles that it will be a bit hard to kind of repeat the same puzzles. But what I think they do, at least when I saw them, is they have like a set of about 50 puzzles kind of repeat themselves in the session. Uh, like once you get through enough of them on that one theme. So it is still possible to repeat. But yeah, I think CTR is the kind of gold standard in terms of like the quality of the, of the positions and the kind of feedback you get on them. Good stuff. And Max, in your interview with uh, Brian Castro, you also quickly mentioned that you have um, a, a photographic memory of sorts. So I'm curious, Max, like, how does that uh, tie in with repeating positions? Because to someone like me, first of all, most grandmasters, in my experience, like they may be modest about their memory, but it's above average for sure from, from what I've come across for the most part, although they might forget their keys or something when they leave the house. But when it comes to chess, they have a good memory. Um, so did you feel like you needed to, or are you one of these people who like when you see a tactical pattern, you're usually going to assimilate it? Uh, yeah, I think that for me, like basically it did make a, a huge help for sure. Dane, it's one thing to you know have a photographic memory and maybe it's one reason why I, you know, we'll just look at like an opening sort of file sort of once and then kind of not really look at it again. Or if I look at the line, again, it'll be with a different sort of file rather than with the same one as such. Uh, but I think that, yeah, it's definitely a important technique and, you know, whether you have, let's say this sort of natural ability or whether you don't, I think it's kind of important either way just to you know, make the most of the resources that you do have as such. I think it's just a very effective method. And it's why I found like the students that do follow this method tend to improve pretty rapidly. Uh, so that kind of is, I know it works not just for me, but for others as well. And how many hours a day are we talking, dare I ask, Max? I remember that when I was doing it like in 2004, when I was like 11 years old and first working through the puzzles, I think I was spending about maybe an hour a day or so working through them. And I was kind of working for them relatively quickly. Because I think there's sort of this discussion, like, do you solve them really slowly or do you try to do them as quickly as you can? And I kind of went more for volume rather than accuracy is the approach I generally went for. Uh, but when I was solving, like, in 2016, like, I was spending about four hours a day and got average kind oh, of working goodness. through these, these tactics puzzles. And it sort of helped me to improve quite fast. Because what I do is, like, no, if I lost... Don't... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so if I, if I lost a Blitz game, like, when I was on this, like, right... Don't jump from 2500 to 700 in a few months. Like, why it has in Blitz? Why does like if I lost a game, I'd just like solve lots and lots of tactics puzzles with whatever the theme was I missed, or if I couldn't figure out what the theme was I missed, I just would just go through whatever puzzles kind of came up. So that's kind of what I did. Like, I just made sure that I just kept going through the, the patterns until they were like truly automatic. Like, one thing actually that probably helped a lot was also actually like playing games like after training because sort of something I think I only recently started to fully appreciate that when you are kind of practicing your chess that one of the best ways to practice is actually to just simply play. But if you're just playing for like just a sake without any real purpose, it's not really going to bring much improvement. 
which is why our people who play like hundreds of thousands of games are still at a relatively high rank relative to the time they put in. But if you're doing, let's say you've done some chess practice, like some sort of training, and then you go and play, it kind of makes those patterns more automatic to have them actually coming up in actual games and really trying to apply them. So that's probably one thing it also helped a lot, like not just the tactic sol- solving method, but like the actual playing and practicing are the patterns I just learned afterwards. Good stuff. Yeah. And also you can kind of hold that out to yourself as a reward um, uh, for, for the hard work, which when you, when you said four hours a day, so when I, I was going to say, no wonder you retired because that's a, that's an intense workload. And um, last thing before we uh, hop into some Patreon listener questions, Max. So do you give that level of advice to your, your students? I know you have some adult students. So if like a working dad comes to you and says, Max, I'm stuck, you know, I just, just not getting better. Um, but I only have, say, uh, an hour a day. Like, is is it possible to improve at that um, amount of time or do you feel that it has to be more? I mean, it depends on a, a lot of different factors, but I think that, like, what I've done is I actually have broken down, like, the amount of time you should spend on each of the different sort of training things when uh, you're based how much time you have. So if you have, like, seven hours, let's say, for uh, a week for chess, uh, then it sort of makes sense, I think, to spend, like, two to three hours like kind of playing and then you know let's say one to two hours like analyzing the games and you know from there you know spending some time solving tactics uh puzzles or solving puzzles in general and then sort of like if you have any remaining time i feel you might have, like one hour like for some other sort of training methods where it's like reading a book that you really enjoy or you know some other active learning method that really you know engages your brain in relation to chess so that'd be like my general suggestion i think that even just like the consistent like one hour let's say, or even like half an hour a day of tactics and can lead to a, a big improvement over time. Like you're just doing the, the right things consistently. And you know, if you're doing, let's say, the right things at one hour a day versus four hours a day, then yeah, the one hour a day will take longer, but you're still going to sort of get the results in the end with the consistent effort. Gotcha. Okay. So slow and steady wins the race. And of course, working moms as well. I got to give a shout out to them. I didn't mean to uh, ex- exclude anyone. Um, so, um, Max, we're going to hop into some uh, Patreon mailbag questions, but first we're going to take a break and uh, hear from our sponsors. As always, Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is a chess learning website that utilizes its move trainer technology to help you learn and remember opening lines, tactical patterns, and end games. It is endorsed by GM Magnus Carlson and features courses from I am John Bartholomew, Sam Shanklin, Wesley So, and so many others. Chessable has over 100,000 members and features hundreds of courses, both for free and for purchase. So if you haven't checked it out yet, please go to chessable.com and take a look around. Back to the interview. Okay, Max, so we got a bunch of good questions from supporters of the show. Thank you all for the good questions. Uh, First up is from James Holyhead. Um, And James asks... He says, as one of the co-founders with I am Cyrus Lakdawalla of Chess Endgame Studies and Compositions Facebook group, what advice, tips, techniques, resources, etc. would you offer to someone who wants to start solving endgame studies, but is finding the level of studies posted to the Facebook group a step or two beyond their ability to solve? So excellent question from James. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that actually Cyrus wrote this really nice book, Rewire Your Chess Brain. And one thing that he did really well so he didn't just like give let's say the full study from the start but he would sometimes pick out the position sort of near the end of the study and you could sort of solve it kind of from there so he sort of did where it's like sort of gradually kind of increasing in difficulty 
Flame Kid's book is probably one of the better resources out there for kind of getting into the sort of art of solving endgame studies. I guess enough here could also suggest like just sort of start with like the absolute basics and kind of work your way up. So for example, if you have, let's say, solved lots of tactics piles already, then you're going to see the same patterns kind of coming up in a more advanced version in the endgame studies. So that's probably one thing I would kind of suggest like that endgame studies, if you solve a lot, will improve your play quite a lot. But at the same time, there's kind of a I think, logical progression as well in how you are, like into the material you work through. So yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there isn't really, I think, uh, another sort of theme puzzle set in terms of like a higher level of sort of, in terms of the studies being organized by difficulty. But uh, yeah, I think that would be my my basic suggestion. And of course, there are different techniques as well for solving some of the, like some of the composed problems, like the forced checkmates in two or three or such. But that'd be much just like if you're finding it too difficult, just start with something easier, like some relatively simpler tactics and then as you get better at the tactics, you'll also generally get better at the studies as well. Uh, and you guys also ask in the group as well, like what's a good kind of person to study for like the short, for like the really easy end game studies. And, you know, I can think of, I'm trying to think of some names. Like it was so long since I looked at end game studies actually uh, myself. But I remember Stammer is one guy who had a lot of really instructive end game studies, that are like quite uh, relatively easy to solve, where else it'll make you work a bit, but you should be able to kind of find the, solution enough effort so yeah maybe if you start like stammers kind of studies he's probably a good name to uh to begin with in terms of specific recommendation good stuff um so yeah and generally there are free online databases involving um some of these study composers so if you google stammer you may come across it i just wanted to add a couple of things because of of course i'm friendly with cyrus and a big fan of his work and uh rewire your chest brain in particular but i do i do want to add that i think if you're rated below 1600 you you might in the whole book get like two puzzles right so just just be ready for that if you are going to tackle it cyrus does do a good job of making it as accessible as possible and he does uh say that getting it right is not the point it's about the effort not the uh not the outcome, but uh, I did want to give fair warning about that. And one other idea I had, James, is um, James, who submitted the question, um, is uh, uh, Martin Eustacen, who was on as an, an adult improver and wrote the uh, blindfold chess puzzle. Um, he has two resources. First of all, his book um, is designed for probably someone slightly more advanced. Martin's about 18, 1900. And when I do, when I try to do those puzzles blindfold, I'm not great blindfold, but I find them uh, reasonably challenging. But if you do them without blindfold, if you do them by looking at the board, um, I think that would be a decent um, level for someone, say, rated below 1600. But then even better is um, on Martin's webpage, uh, someone, uh, and the name who helped Martin with this escapes me, so I apologize, but someone built like um, an overlay to the Lee Chess puzzle tactic that... Um, through his webpage lists, gives you blindfold puzzles where it lists where the pieces are. So you don't see the diagram, but they're, they're, otherwise it's just like the Lee Chess puzzle interface. So if you're doing blindfold puzzles at a 900 level, you'll get 900 level puzzles. So um, last I heard, there's no, it's not on the Lee Chess app. You can only access it through um, like a skin on uh, Martin's blog, but I will put a link to that in the show description for James and anyone else who's interested in uh, working on their blindfold game. So there are resources out there, um, but and, and blindfold and end game studies, of course, are not the same thing, but um, I think they kind of train the same muscles. Do you, do you think that's 
reasonable, Max, to consider lump them together? Yeah, I mean, the way I kind of see it is like I think that with Blindfold, like it's training your mainly visualization as such. So it definitely is useful in that regard. And the end game style, I think it trains visualization and also like imagination and your know, analytical skills and sort of persistence in you know, overcoming resistance in the puzzles. But yeah, it's true. Like with end game styles, it's definitely a certain learning curve and it's not that accessible to the average person, I think, unless you're willing to put some like effort into it. Like it's kind of like, you know, if you look at chess, even just in general, like chess is a very, everyone kind of to know what's going on a little bit in order to, you know, to kind of make sense. Like it's not, it takes a while to kind of understand why people played certain moves. And I feel like Endgame's like kind of like a level above that in terms of the accessibility to, uh, to our uh, people to solve and to, well, not to enjoy it, but at least to be able to solve it correctly. Yeah, I, I agree. And also like, despite all the people who do recommend and um, are like uh, graduates, quote unquote, of Endgame studies that, that come on this podcast, I do think that um, tactics themselves are a decent proxy for them, like below a certain level. Um, it's just, as you get, as you get more advanced, you, you need more advanced stuff. And um, as as uh, Cyrus and others have said, the one good thing about endgame studies as you continue to advance is that they really challenge you to find the best move for your opponent as well, which is not like if you're just doing a tactics trainer, sometimes that can be um, that uh, isn't drilled as well. Um, but let's get to the next question, Max, because we got uh, some more good ones. Um, so this one is from friend of the show, Aaron Holloway Nahum, um, who says, Hi, Max. I've been playing chess for about three years, reaching 2100 online at faster time controls, but having little OTB or let's say real chess to rile up the perpetual chess listeners experience. I feel like one of my absolute biggest weaknesses is the ability to evaluate a position that doesn't have some straightforward characteristics, such as a material imbalance or a clearly winning endgame or something like that. I noticed this that in watching a lot of the commentary of the big tournaments and the analysis players will say, um, they'll give a line and then say it looks much better for a white. Do you have any tips on increasing this skill? I haven't been able to find a book on this, although a couple of the chapters in the Yusupov series um, were helpful. So he'd be interested in recommendations. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, when it comes to the skill itself, like it mainly comes from a sort of accumulation experience. Like it's a large reflection of a sort of strong player's understanding, like how accurately they can sort of assess the the kind of position that's in front of them. I remember the book that really helped me at a, when I was maybe at a somewhat higher level was this book, uh, Simple Chess by Michael Steen. I remember what he does really good, he kind of breaks down the sort of different positional themes and the different factors, like, for example, space, and I guess one on minor pieces and open files and outposts, I think, for the different sections. So, I mean, that's a book I think that will probably help quite a lot in terms of like making sense of, okay, this is why, you know, white is better in this position or this Y position is sort of balanced or something like this. I mean, I guess the other perspective you can look at is kind of to just basically try to simplify your kind of evaluation function as much as possible. So for example, just break it down into like the kind of dynamic component of, you know, the initiative and who is kind of having the flow of threats and the more active pieces and piece mobility. And then you can sort of then break it down sort of also with the pawn structures like who has kind of the pawn weaknesses in the position or who has more space. And then there are also like other more long-term strategic factors. Well, actually the pawn structures are probably the most strategic factor, but then you might have, say, the minor piece imbalances or major piece imbalances and you know, along these kind of lines as well uh, as such. But even if you just take those three things, you can sort of figure 
okay, like if someone's position is better, it's going to be because of one of these three factors essentially. And of course, they're going to be broken down a lot more deeply. But yeah, I think that probably the simpler your evaluation sort of function is in terms of evaluating the position, probably the you know the more it will make sense and the more you can actually sort of apply it in a game's I guess one point I would add to that is that also when it comes to position, I've actually found that like often you actually can play quite a good game without really knowing like the evaluation, correct evaluation of the position or even not really caring about it. Because I remember that was one of the breakthroughs for me is that one of my big weaknesses when I was about, let's say, 2200 to 2250 is I'd get like very attached to what I thought the assessment of the position felt like. And I get so attached to it, I would stop me finding the best move because it didn't look like a move that say looked clearly better for white. But it was a move like if I want to worry about the evaluation, I'll just play it like normally. So I guess that's one thing that might also be encouraging that, yeah, it's a good skill to develop, but you can play pretty good chess here without really knowing or caring what the evaluation is in an actual game. And for some people, it might even help to stop caring about the evaluation and just play the best move in front of you. Yeah, I was wondering that before you got to that point. So I'm glad you glad you brought it up, Max. Yeah, because sometimes, I mean, often I feel like people... Uh, what's going on in the like the story they're telling themselves doesn't necessarily resemble what's going on in the game. Um, and uh, simple chess for listeners who didn't catch it. I mean, it's a classic, amazing book. First of all, and second of all, um, we I actually did a, a book recap uh, with uh, JB from Twitter. So if uh, listeners haven't caught that, you can hear all about uh, the wisdom from Simple Chess. Um, okay. Next up, since we have a lot of chess improvement questions for you, Max, this one is from Mark Fitzpatrick, who says he'd appreciate hearing your opinion on the benefits of quickly solving a large quantity of easier puzzles as composed to calculating deeply with fewer but more challenging positions. He can see both being useful, but in in his opinion, um, he's not sure how to divide his study time. And for uh, just uh, for background, he's probably... Uh, Mark thinks his rating is probably around eleven to twelve hundred. Yeah, sure. Um, and actually, it's a good thing that uh, they brought up this question because it actually ties into the way I was solving the puzzles. Because I remember when I started solving the puzzles, and I think this is when I was about, let's say, thirteen to fourteen hundred. You know, rather than starting with C tight immediately, I actually started with some easier puzzles. Like there was this chess tactics for beginners course I remembered working through, and it was time like most of the puzzles were kind of once I could solve relatively quickly. But I found that actually was very helpful for me to go from, let's say, solving the easy puzzle in five seconds to solving the easy puzzle in 0.1 seconds. I just basically saved up a lot of time in the games and saved up a lot of energy. And what I found is like with solving a lot of really easy puzzles is that actually it really, uh, it means like when you're calculating a game, like it means instead of, say if you're in the line five moves deep, but you already know the pattern, you're going to still kind of see that pattern five moves later if you've been training the easy puzzle a lot as well. And I remember actually the person who kind of, I guess, deserved the credit for leading me towards the kind of the power of the easy puzzles, like my coach at the time, uh, Brett Tyndall, uh, where he was like my coach in 2003 to like early 2007. And at first I would try like, are these puzzles like too easy? He said, no, go through them anyway and you'll see the kind of improvement. And when I was doing that, like working a lot for easy puzzles, that's when I you know, went up 400 rating points in, uh, you know, in one year from like 14, 1500 to like 1800 plus as such. So uh, I guess in terms of answering the question, yeah, I think that at this level, like solving a lot of easier puzzles and making sure you're getting the easy puzzles right, like more and more is I think the most valuable thing, because that's kind of what's going to decide most of your games, like who kind of puts a piece on pre and who takes you on pre piece and you know, who kind of sees the opponent's threat or misses the opponent's threat. 
So it's kind of that would be my my sort of tip in general for that. And there is certainly a place for doing the more deliberate kind of analysis and definitely can improve a game a lot as well. But I feel like mastering the easy pulse first is kind of going to be the, the way to do it, kind of keep improving in a, let's say, in an incremental fashion. Like you work through step one and then like the next level and level three and kind of gradually improve from there. Because like if you're trying to solve a level five sort of puzzle when you haven't even like got level two mastered, then that's when you're going to struggle and maybe get a bit frustrated. Good stuff. We can't promise you'll gain uh, 400 points, Mark, but um, but other than that, I think it's uh, very good advice from Max. It also builds confidence, which I think is um, is important. I mean, if you're just batting your head against the wall, um, there is a place for that in chess improvement, but, but uh, you don't have to do it all the time um, and at all levels. Okay, one more uh, chess improvement related question, Max. This one is from longtime friend of the show, Tyron Ross Price who asks, he says, uh, he thinks it's good to strengthen where he excels and bolster where he falls short, but he's unsure of a good way to objectively assess his greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses in chess. So do you have any advice on how he might do that? Uh, Yeah, sure. This is uh, a really good question. And I think that, yeah, this is one of probably the greatest challenges, like not just in chess in general, having a very good understanding of where you are kind of at on a sort of objective level. And I mean, for me, I'd sort of with the openings, it's kind of easy because you can just look up your games like on a you know, site like openingtree.com, for example, for the online games and say, okay, like I'm doing well in these positions and I'm kind of struggling in these sorts of positions. So that can sort of give you some actual quantifiable data. So it's not just based on a, on a feeling. I mean, that I think does does help. But if you're looking like beyond, let's say, like the openings, I think that's really then the the kind of game analysis comes in. And I actually have this three-step process for the game analysis that kind of, I think, addresses this question quite well when done at a large scale. And that's like the step one is to sort of understand what uh, what the actual mistakes were and what the possible improvements were. So at least you can say, okay, if I end up in this position, then this is what I could have done instead. Uh, but then the next step is to kind of understand what you need to see or appreciate in order to basically play that best move uh, in the position or at least to play a better move as such. And that's something that we're basically, you know, a quite simple way to do is just to see, okay, like I'm just going to compare, let's say what the computer gives or what my coach is saying with my own thought process and then see, okay, so if I'd seen this, I would have known like, that this was the move to play as such, like whether it's missing some sort of line at the end of the combination or missing some possibly on move one for the opponent or misevaluating the position. As you kind of figure out, okay, these are the, sort of things that I'm kind of missing. Like over time, we're going to see a pattern of the same kind of mistakes coming up and also the same kind of positions, I guess, where you're doing well and maybe beating high rated players or just playing quite strongly. Uh, and then the third step is, yeah, to basically figure out, well, what can I kind of do differently either in my thought process during the game or in my training to be able to play those positions better in the future, like to make those decisions better in the future. So that's kind of the three-step process and, if you do it for one game, you get certain conclusions. But if you do that for a lot of games, like let's say when you get to 10 or 20 games that you've analyzed, then you'll see, okay, like I'm often missing this particular thing. Or, you know, in these games I won, like this was sort of the pattern I was getting these type of positions where I felt quite comfortable. I mean, that's actually also one way also that is kind of a, let's say if you don't have time to analyze like 10 of your games quite quickly, then you can also just ask like what positions am I comfortable in? and most comfortable in and what positions am I kind of uncomfortable in? And you, know, you can use your results in uh, you know, an opening tree to see that. 
and that'll kind of give you a kind of decent idea of, okay, like, this is why it's all positions I might want to aim for in my games, and these are the positions I may want to work on in order to round out my overall level and kind of move up uh, as a player. Yeah, opening tree is a good resource, and I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, my friends at Aim Chess. Um, obviously, they've sponsored the show, so take you know, listeners, you can you can take this with a grain of salt if you want. But I'm a genuine fan of their algorithms that, especially for faster online games, um, are able to compare how you how you're handling the open compared to your sort of rating peers, and how you're handling the end game, and how you're handling time management. Um, you know, for sort of squishier or more nebulous, like positional themes, maybe something like playing against an isolated pawn or something, or just closed positions as composed compared to open. For for concepts like that, you might need a coach or you might need to do some painstaking analysis. But I do think that uh, artificial intelligence is certainly helping uh, in this regard. And obviously, it will only continue to improve. Um, um, okay, so Max, um, Couple more things on chess improvement. I know I won't be the first person to ask you about uh, chess book recommendations, but but I can't um, can't let you get through this interview without getting a few recommendations out, out of out of you. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think I would preface these recommendations by saying, like, when it comes to let's say working through books, I think it's kind of useful to try to do it in a somewhat active way. Well, let's say you're not just like reading it the way someone might watch a YouTube video, but like actually kind of thinking about the like the positions are kind of asking like questions and that really helps quite a lot. Like if you're not sure you understand something else, okay, like what if they played this move instead or, you know, why wasn't this move played as such? I uh, can help a lot. And I mean, it's sort of, when it comes to books, like, I mean, I've read over a thousand chess books, I think cover to cover in my, in my lifetime, I think by now I've kind of lost count, but it's somewhere around this range. Uh, and I mean, it sort of depends on what level I think really what uh, would be the book to recommend. Like, I know, for example, like with things like Endgames, like it's very easy to recommend, say, Silman's complete Endgame course uh, for, let's say, not so advanced players, because he actually breaks down the Endgames by rating. So you can say, okay, if I'm at this rating, then these are the Endgames I really should know to kind of play and understand the Endgame at this sort of level. Uh, and then for a more advanced, like Varetsky's Endgame manual is kind of the gold standard. And yeah, for openings, it really kind of depends on, you know, what, uh, you know, what kind of opening you're playing as such, what the recommendation is from there. So I kind of leave sort of the, let's say, middle game kind of books then in terms of the different phases of the game. And I think that like books like by Chernev, for example, like his logical chess move by move, like is quite good for kind of very, a very clear understanding of the ideas behind different moves as they were played for people who really like a lot of textual explanation. Uh, and I also think actually that uh, like some really good game collections as well, like the 60 memorable games by Fisher and the, you know, Bronte 953 are, are kind of two classics that are, are really very good. You know, also the CTR was like a, is in a book version. Like originally it was a book and it turned into a, a CD from there. Um, and he also, I mentioned simple chess before for the positional understanding. Uh, one thing I also find interesting is actually when it comes to books like uh, My System, that a lot of people like are very critical of it, but I think that actually the examples themselves are, are really very high quality and they can actually learn just by going through the examples and just not reading the text. And I found it actually improved my understanding quite a bit just by uh, you know by going through the books in this kind of way. So there's kind of like a lot of a lot of good uh, books to be honest. Like it's kind of spoiled for choice. I mean, I guess of the more recent ones, I remember there was some 
really nice ones like uh, you know Bayonne Materialing by Kulyasevich won uh, like won some prize quite recently, for example. Like in terms of like the initiative and more dynamic factors, I guess art for attack of attacking chess is another classic when it comes to like the you know attacking an initiative. So yeah, I mean they're kind of a I could go on and on, but these are just some of the ones I kind of will single out. And uh, and also like Smerdin's book on swindling is like a, a really great one as well. Like I think that the Australian win in the Asian Online Nations, like at least my good performance was in large part due to be able to swindle a lot of bad positions. And I think that it wouldn't have happened so well without studying this book just before the event started. So I have to give a shout for that as well, because it's the last book I studied, I think really improved my play to a much higher level. Excellent. Shout out to your fellow Australian, your fellow Australian grandmaster, David Smerdin. Yeah. And that and beyond material are definitely amongst the more lauded recent books. Although, I mean, what the good thing about David's book is, uh, it's, um, any, a wide variety of of, uh, levels can, uh, can benefit from that book. Um, and Max, um, in, in the aforementioned interview with Brian Castro, you mentioned you had at least one book project of your own in the works. Is that still happening? Uh, yeah, what I'm kind of doing now is like, I sort of have some like different resource. I kind of self-publish nowadays. Like I kind of created the Illingworth Chess Academy basically to you know have these courses and different you know, subscriptions and coaching programs to sell online. So I've actually kind of self-published a, uh, couple of different books but like it's just on my uh on my website at the moment i kind of find that i actually enjoy doing the video content more i think it's because it just you can get through the content a lot faster like speaking it rather than you know sort of reading it uh as it were so i think in terms of sort of subsequent projects you're probably just doing more different video courses and just kind of you know going kind of deep into those in order to be able to match them with the depth of a book uh as it were but still make it accessible to the average player uh-oh, because we're constantly debating about if chess books are dying, and it sounds like you're one of the people killing them, Max, even <laughs> though you're uh, obviously a chess bibliophile in your own right, um, having read a thousand books in your time. And also, I enjoyed uh, the story you told, Brian, about uh, about reading Yasser's series when you were a kid. So could you, could you relay that? Because um, I think uh, it'll show a lot of people who wonder the secret sauce to become a grandmaster. I think it might reveal one of the ingredients. <laughs> Yeah, this was a pretty fun story, actually, where I basically, well, I was playing this tournament uh, as a kid at eight years old. It was kind of like my first tournament outside of, let's say, my you know, local area. I was still in Sydney, but like all of Sydney, not just like uh, one suburb or district. So basically, I played this tournament and at that point, I'd been playing very casually for about two years, like, let's say, as a hobby at most. And I, yeah, basically scored, I think, three points out of seven in this tournament. And I saw this, uh, you know, junior player a couple of years younger than me, uh, Raymond Song, and he ended up basically winning my tournament, the under 10 version of that event with a seven out of seven score. And I kind of lit this sort of competitive fire. because I think that before that point, I'd always been very curious and just kind of explored things for their own sake, like just out of curiosity. But that was kind of the turning point where I started to, to get this kind of fire of like this competitive, like, okay, I really want to improve as much as possible. I want to like win all the, the events and, like maybe it was like just the feeling of the winning, I think, is what I was really seeking. Because I mean, I'd already like won, like I already had knew that feeling of winning from like beating my parents in various like strategic games, I think about five or six years of age. So I kind of knew like that feeling of like why, of why I really want to win. But then when I kind of connected with the chess, what I did was I, immediately after that torn fish, I went to the bookstore and I actually bought uh, like all of the Yasser one books that I could. Unfortunately, the... Tactics one had already been purchased by someone else, so I kind of missed the chance there. 
but I bought all the other ones that I could there and basically just read through them. And because basically I like had a quite advanced, uh, let's say, reading ability for my age from a very young age. So for me, like reading just came very naturally and I did it quite a lot. And I basically like, would read through these books. And so ultimately, I was like getting to my ninth birthday and I decided that, you know, previously like, when it came to my birthday, I didn't really care too much what exactly I wanted. But at that time, I really wanted to have a chess lesson with a grandmaster. You know, I hadn't even met a grandmaster in person at that time. So it'd like, be a really cool like, experience and I think I'd learn a lot. So I basically, you know, my mum was like trying to find a grandmaster and you know, there are only two grandmasters in Australia and, you know, one Ian Rogers at that time was overseas in, I think, uh, Amsterdam and Dal Johansson was in uh, Melbourne. So basically the compromise was that, you know, my mum called uh, an international master, John Paul Wallace. You know, he had surpassed uh, Australian champion as well. Uh, so yeah, basically she called JP and... JP said, oh, I don't really coach beginners on the phone. But then my mum said, oh, uh, Max has read all of the Yasser One books and he understands them. And then yeah, JP just said, this kid I've got to see. So I ended up like going to this first lesson, you know, to his place. Like, I think I drove, my mum drove like two hours to, uh, wow. you know, to go to this lesson for me for like uh, one hour. Actually, yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, basically... You know, at the end, I sort of said, oh, could we like have another lesson? And, you know, JP kind of enjoyed the, the lesson as well. So he said yes. And it kind of, you know, went from there. And you know, so John Paul was my, you know, my first private coach as such. And, uh, you know, definitely a lot of my early imprinting real passion for Jess definitely you know, was fostered by, uh, by him quite a lot. Uh, but the conclusion of the story is that then in 2016, I saw like that Yasser Serawans, I think if I, I don't think it was the captain, but I think it was like involved with the, the US team. Like, it might have been a coach or, or something. Uh, or captain another team. But anyway, I saw kind of Yasser like at the event and it occurred to me, you know, it would be really great to actually share this uh, this story. I think what happens, I was talking to one of my friends in the Olympiad team. I said, oh, I shared this story. And he said, I actually said, oh, you really need to share that story with Yasser. So I went up to him like when he was free and I like basically shared this story with him and yeah, he thought it was pretty uh, pretty cool. Like the my kind of, let's say big passion and like my I was actually really studying chess deeply came from, uh, you know, from Yasser's books, essentially. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's probably also one reason why I think I had a, let's say, more developed kind of positional strategic feel for the game at quite a young age. I think a lot of it just came from reading through these Yasser books a lot of times. It kind of gave me the kind of good strategic feel, let's say, for my level. Like that a lot of the other kids were just playing for tactics and tricks, but my style was a bit more unique at this time, let's say. Yeah, I mean, also, it shows like an amazing uh, uh, work ethic and um, curiosity for a kid at, at such a young age to to read that. And that's that's something that uh, is not to be discounted. I mean, as someone who works with some kids, a lot of them, they love the game and they're happy to play, but they're not going to crack a book on their own, especially not at, um, at such a young age. Um, so good stuff, Max. I just have a couple more questions for you. But uh, first, we're going to take another break to hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. Here is what ChessMood offers. It is a subscription-based website that provides a comprehensive opening repertoires both for white and for black. They also have middle game and end game videos from their cast of professional Grandmaster trainers. They also have some free content that you can check out. Grandmaster Avchek Gregorian, who's their founder and you can hear on episode 192 of Perpetual Chess, has a blog where he writes about common challenges for tournament players that you can check out for free. And they also started offering free YouTube videos called Daily Lessons with the Grandmaster. So go to their website, check out what they have to offer, and be sure to subscribe to their YouTube as well. And let's get back to the interview. 
Okay, Max, so we are back and we have um, uh, one more Patreon question. This one is from another uh, chess Facebook star, Brian Karen, the founder of the uh, Chess Book Collectors Group, uh, 30,000 members strong, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so Brian asks you, he says, uh, you strike me as an extremely goal-driven person. Do you have any general advice on setting and, and achieving goals that is not specifically related to chess? That's question number one, and then we'll there's another one, but let's get that one first, Max. Yeah, sure. And yeah, I think this is probably a, a fair statement. Like I find if I don't have some goal that's like really important for me to drive towards, like I can get a bit sort of, you know, lost and uh, be like, okay, like what do I, I do now? Like I always feel like I'm moving on to the kind of the next thing, whatever that, that kind of is. And I think, yeah, when it comes to the goal setting in general, like uh, I remember when I was at school, like I learned like this sort of smart acronym and all these other different things, but I found in practice it's kind of a lot simpler in reality. And it sort of comes down to just basically the goal being like important enough to you, where it sort of goes from being like something you want to do or something you should do to being an absolute necessity as such. But I find when you kind of find that reason or you know, that why of why that's really important for you to do that, that's sort of where a lot of the progression comes. And also I find with the why that it's something that is, I think, constantly in development and in progress as well, that it kind of you know evolves over time as you grow as a person and as you try different things where for me, I think like I mentioned an example earlier in the interview of how I was getting a lot more into crazy house and the kind of deeper wide areas that, well, okay, I want to fulfill my, you know, my competitive drive to like be doing, be really good at something and actually performing at a, a very high level and really kind of enjoying the progress of learning and kind of improving as such. But you know, that why you know, probably in one or two months time could be quite different as such. But I think that that's one thing also I would add that something I only, really kind of appreciate I think in the last uh, year or so is that it's not just about like asking like why is this important but kind of going deeper into like many many levels of it because what you'll find when doing is that you know at first you'll think okay like this is the reason why and just sort of leave it at that but if you go much deeper and like ask like why is that important and then like why is that reason important like it's actually an exercise called the seven levels of why exercise I've done with some students before and that's why I find like it allows you to see the really deep deeply rooted reason of why this goal is kind of important. And uh, yeah, I think that would be the sort of the most sort of practical tip I could give, like just very, very, very clear why it's important, but not just the surface reason, but like the really, let's say deepest reason possible within you. And I think once you do that, then kind of the action sort of follow from there when you've got the, you know, when you've got this down and it fits very well with the mindset as well. Like it all is kind of connected in this way. Good stuff. Yeah. When you when you talk about the why, echoes of my recent interview with uh, Vishnu Srikumar, adult improver extraordinaire, who was talking about how that's a common question that uh, Grandmaster Avtik Gregorian also asks his students. And Max, you mentioned SMART goals, but we have to define them um, for anyone who's not familiar with them. I, of course, I've come across it in the literature like, you know, tons of times. But when you said it, I was trying to remember and I couldn't. So can you remember the acronym? Because I have it here if you if you can't. What, what the S-M-A-R and T are? Yeah, I mean, I have this sort of seems unique power to like forget anything that's not really like important to me. But I remember it's like specific, measurable, I think achievable, attainable, then realistic and timed. I think I, I got it right. Boom, you did. Yeah. Yeah. You might word it differently. Number four here is listed as relevant, but you passed the uh you passed the photographic memory test. Well well done, Max. Um okay, let's get to the uh the second part of uh of Brian's question, which is uh he says, When I think of Australian chess, two legends come to mind, Cecil Purdy and Grandmaster Ian Rogers. 
did either of these players have any impact on your chess development or were they too far removed to have had influence? Yeah, with uh, Cecil Purdy, like I always like knew he was like the first world correspondence champion. But I think I was already a grandmaster before I really paid sort of attention to his uh, like to his works as such. But I remember in early 2017, like I actually saw uh, his books. Actually, it might have been 2018. I've kind of forgotten the exact year, but I remember I saw these books on uh, on sale as such. And like I basically am like just getting these Purdy books very cheaply, like for five dollars each. And I remember looking, and I actually found that I kind of learned quite a bit, like even as a grandmaster, look at kind of these different clear explanations. Because he kind of picked these games like very crystal clear where one player kind of made a clear mistake and you sort of see the game plan almost like a Capablanca kind of way in terms of the clarity of the ideas. Uh, which actually that's one chess book as well I can also add to recommendations, the Chess Fundamentals by Capablanca, I think a really great book for beginners because the other chess were a little more advanced. Uh, but yeah, going back to the Purdy question, yeah, I think that... Uh, Probably his influence was not so great because most of the things I think he would have taught me in the books I kind of already knew, but it still was quite interesting to read like how uh, how far ahead his teaching methods were. Like I think he influenced my uh, my way I did coaching at the very least, if not as much as a player. And as Rian, yeah, Ian was a very big uh, influence because he was my trainer actually from 2007 to 2013. And like he's the, if there's one person I could sort of attribute on a chess level like to getting me to the Grandmaster title, I'd say Ian's probably the biggest kind of influence as such because, like, it was at a level where, you know, there were not so many players higher rated than me at that time, you know, with Australia being not as strong then as perhaps it is now. And, uh, yeah, basically I kind of need to get that understanding in some sort of way. And, I mean, certainly playing Blitz can give you some of it, but have actually, you know, analysing with a Grandmaster and being able to ask him, like, questions and you know, having actually answer my questions as well, like, even outside the sessions, like, that really that really made a big difference for me. And, you know, I think that that really, you know, research, like once I finished high school, then I just started to improve very rapidly. And, you know, a lot of that was due to his, uh, there was really great coaching and his, uh, his support along the way as well. So I, uh, yeah, very, uh, very grateful to that. And I think that without that support, it would have been uh, much longer for me to get to the grandmaster title or indeed a good question where I would have got there all without some, you know, grandmaster there really helping me uh, for those steps. So yeah, just uh, been life changing really. Yeah, Australian legend Grandmaster Ian Rogers, and were you guys both in Moscow? I mean, what was uh, in um, uh, Sydney? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that brain fart was, but were you guys both in Sydney at the time, Max? Uh, yeah, we were. I mean, he was sometimes going over to Amsterdam, but I remember what it was like whenever he was available. Like we, I would basically do like a three hour lesson with him each week because I kind of just knew like that's sort of what I kind of needed. And you know, one creative thing I did was that you know my mum actually managed to get me an exemption uh like from sport where basically chess became like my sports like i do the you know the sport like with ian uh as such and it is remember keep in mind that chess is not considered a sport in australia shockingly so like for that like the principal like to allow that that was like a big uh a big progression and you know it's very uh you're very fortunate the way it worked out yeah when i interviewed i am andres toth he was explaining that uh the fact that it's not designated as a sport is a big deal for for any uh, chess culture or uh, relative lack of it in, mm. in Australia. Mm. Um, so were there any like specific lessons, life lessons or chess um, nuggets that you, um, that you uh, gleaned from Grandmaster Ian Rogers that, that you could share with us? I mean, I think the one that's probably the most influential part, at least from a life perspective, I think was kind of understanding the 
importance of the psychology, I think, in terms of like recognizing, okay, there are different, like the things like that people can say can have a big impact on your mindset. Like that's something I think that I really became much more aware of when I started, you know, working with Ian. Like, cause I would you know, sort of observe and notice like, for example, Tom's sort of keep, uh, keep his distance like away, like before the games is like walking, like just as the round was about to start. And I think, yeah, that's sort of a important lesson because like one thing is like you, the coach isn't always going to have all of the solutions and actually don't need to have all the solutions in order to be a really great coach. But it was very good about making me aware of different sort of situations and different challenges. And it allowed me to kind of find my own solutions over time. Like it's one thing also that like Ian did was he kind of gave some spacey times to figure things out on my own. I think that also is sometimes a important skill of a, of a coach as well. Uh, so I'd say that that was probably the big thing in terms of the, I guess, more psychological or like life sort of perspective. And in terms of the chess, I think, yeah, like the uh, one thing I remember that did help a lot is I remember he really got me to focus more on end games in, in 2007. I remember like actually I, that like my end games got up to my trial of late 2007 definitely helped me a lot to have my breakthrough performance in the 2008 Australian Championship where that was a time I sort of went from like always being behind the other like junior top junior players to kind of being one of the clear top players after that uh, among the juniors. So uh, I guess that was also a big thing, like to make sure to do the things even that you might find a little bit boring, because probably the things that you find boring are also things that you're probably the weakest at. So it makes it all the more important to kind of give them some attention. Wow. Yeah. Really good advice there. Do you, do you remember what you worked on for your end game? Yeah. I remember like I worked through the Van Perlo's end game tactics where I just went through ah. cover to cover. Actually, I remember it's funny. I remember I was on this long, uh, long uh, car trip, like to visit my relatives for Christmas. Like, it was about 12 hours. I think I remember I read through like virtually the whole Van Perlo book, like on the 12 hour car trip, like just playing through all the positions and examples in my head. Uh, so yeah, that was basically like how I, how I studied it. And the nice thing is actually in 2008, like in that Australian championship just after Christmas, I remember I was actually playing against Stephen Solomon. He was like a very, one of like end game expert in Australia, like a very strong practical end game player. And I sort of felt very proud of like in this tournament that, you know, he ended up winning the tournament and the 2008 Australian championship title. But I was sort of very proud of the fact I was like the one person who like actually had like got to like outplaying him at least at one part of the end game. We ended up like missing the win and ended up being a draw because he found a very nice, uh, nice trick. But like Ian actually like wrote in his like column, like I was like the one person like not to kind of, you know, lose to solos like end game magic. So it's yeah, kind of a, I sort of, I remember I sort of started to appreciate the importance of it. Actually also it helped me a lot with my blitz. I remember, because I remember back in 2007, I think I was right about like two 100 feet a, but on blitz, like my level was like improving quite a lot where by the end of that year, I think I was probably close to a two 500 strength in blitz online. Like if we relate to feed a ratings, but when I was playing Grandmasters, what was happening was I was just outplaying me in the end game almost every single time. And then when I kind of worked for this Van Perla book and before that, the Stillman's Complete Endgame course, after that, I sort of found I was able to kind of hold my own with at least the, let's say, two 500-ish Grandmasters in the endgame. So that was kind of a big turning point for me, I think, uh, uh, in that area. Wow. A lot of useful nuggets there. Good stuff, Max. Yeah. So uh, that also circles back to uh, Tyron Ross Price's question about assessing your strengths and weaknesses. So it sounds like uh, Ian was definitely helpful with that and uh, obviously paid a lot of uh, dividends. Um, so, Max, um, I think we hit most of the topics we I wanted to, but I did want to just I was just curious, like uh, what what your other interests are. I know you're reading a lot about self-improvement. Um 
and uh, psychology. Um, what else? Uh, what else are you into um, in in your daily life? Yeah, I find that my interests tend to change quite a bit. I think that's part of me, probably due to being, I guess, very passionate in general, I guess, rather than just being passionate, say, about chess. Like, for the moment, I'd say probably, like, the big hobby is probably, like, Crazy House and, like, playing a bit of online poker where, you know, obviously I can't play for, uh, you know, for money, like, in Vietnam or in uh, or in Australia, so it's play with play money, but it's, like, just a kind of hobby where I just sort of will play a bit. And it actually helped me a lot because it sort of got basically out me to overcome my fear of large numbers as such, which might sound funny, but, yeah, poker, like, sort of helped me with, my life in a few different ways in uh, like getting a bit of a more objective perspective on things and not letting, I guess, myself be, uh, be run just by emotions uh, a lot of the time uh, as such. But yeah, like a lot, I guess so many, it's hard to kind of name them all. Like I know I really enjoy like food and, you know, I kind of, yeah, just like just enjoy learning about different things as well. Like I sometimes like follow like different games or, you know, different sort of sports or whatever. Basically like it just sort of changes quite a lot. Like you could ask me the question in, one week from now and probably the answer will be quite different, but yeah, I'm pretty curious about sort of most things in general, you could say. Good stuff. Um, that's funny about play money. I've always wondered who plays play money poker because it always seems like it kind of ruins the game to me, but, <laughs> but, uh, but now I know. Um, and you said you're, you and your wife will be moving back to uh, Australia. Do you have a timeline on when that's happening, Max? Yeah, I mean, I already like booked the flight, so the plans like to go back oh, on, wow. uh, on July of uh, of this year. Because I was just waiting for my wife to get the visa, and she got that uh, late last year. So uh, yeah, it kind of works uh, pretty well. Good stuff. Well, I wish you a safe transition back, and we've so we've got listeners can check out your website. Um, are are you available for private coaching, or is it just uh, general? Um, like joining your website and keeping up with what you're doing that way. What's uh, what's the best way to keep up with you, Max? Yeah, right now I'm not really doing any uh, any private coaching as such. But yeah, the best way is just to you know go to my website, which will be linked in the in the description anyway. You know, there you can just access my free uh, chess course, How to Win at Chess. Whereas, like, I think I haven't counted exactly, but I think it's close to 14 hours of like video content with my you know step by step system for you know improving your chess. So that's like the best place to go, and you know you'll be kept up to my stuff from there. Good stuff. And listeners, for anyone who's on Facebook, Max is very generous and very active on there. So um, I don't know if you have room for more followers, but certainly like in the uh, in the the aforementioned Facebook groups, as well as on your personal account, you uh, answer a lot of questions for uh, improving players. So that's much appreciated, Max. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Max, anything else before we let you out of here? I know it's uh, nighttime and uh, we've, we've had your family be quiet and I want to thank, uh, thank them for doing that. That was really kind of them to, um, it was, there was a loud din when we started and they've been amazing. So, um, so thanks to them, Max. And is there anything else before we let you out of here? Uh, yeah, there was one other thing that I was kind of thinking of just beforehand and I've kind of like, I think, touched on it like indirectly without saying specifically, but one thing I've found quite interesting and I guess it relates back like to having a lot of interest and exploring a lot of new things in general is I find like when you go through something like and start out as a beginner again that it's sort of a very rewarding experience on a lot of levels that you kind of just really uh yeah you kind of just really just enjoy like the experience just learning and having kind of a really fast improvement from a little bit of effort uh, as such uh so and I think that also like from a coaching perspective it also can help that if you are like doing something kind of new and like just starting out then it kind of gives you more kind of empathy for where your students might be at in a similar situation with chess that you might be in with something else. So I find like that's one thing, like I'm kind of, you know, constantly like trying, 
exciting new things. And I think it also it's like a lot of my ideas do come from areas like outside of chess in terms of chess improvement. So yeah, I think that's kind of a, a point of sort of a, not say a hard recommendation, but something I guess to sort of keep in mind from a general like improvement perspective that someday could be a certain joy in being a, a beginner as well. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, something touched upon when I interviewed uh, the author of Beginners, Tom Vanderbilt. But yeah, it's everyone's always chasing that feeling of like the fast assimilation of knowledge. And then you you hit these plateaus and it can be frustrating. So yeah, it's uh, good advice to look outside of chess. Um, okay, well, Max, this has been fantastic. I want to wanna thank you for uh, all of the insights that you shared. And uh, congratulations on uh, all your successes, both over the board and uh, with the training. And um Good luck with your uh, pending move back to uh, to Australia. Mm, thank you. Big shout out to Matthew Passy, my producer, been helping us for over four years. Much appreciated as always. I also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show, whether it be by word of mouth or a positive review on a podcast platform. I can't even keep track of all the platforms anymore, but every review is appreciated. I also wanted to remind you guys, you are always welcome to follow me or Perpetual Chess on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Official one That's where I'm most active. We also have the Perpetual Chess Facebook group where we post every episode and sometimes the guests chime in to continue the conversation. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is unretired. Follow us at Perpetual Chess where we post weekly clips. If you would like to email me, the easiest way is ben at perpetualchesspod.com. Also, of course, want to thank our sponsors, chessable.com and ChessAim and ChessMood. Thanks for helping the cause, guys. Much appreciated and great products that I'm proud to be affiliated with. Last but not least, of course, I want to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal supporters. I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities, chessable.com, David Lazarus of lasmanchess.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, the Apprentess Twitch channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Galuk, Guvin Manet, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, The King's Crusher YouTube channel, one of the OGs of Chess YouTube, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnase Twitch channel, Peter Sodi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Reverend Roy Fry, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alan and Maggie Sue, 
Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Chess Patser Spain, I'm not sure if that one's a real name, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach J's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Caras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskoschek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Durker, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Emmanuel Langlois Robitaille, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrek Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Han Schrute, Harish Renivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John Tully, Juan Almogar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Jeff Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Josh Friedel, Kare Christensen, WGM, Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gada of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostyakovyutsky of the Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gabel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Robert Tichi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Seth Ruzica, Shane Unger, Silver Knights Enrichment, Stefan Roller, WGM, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, as always, for the support, everyone. I will catch you guys all next week. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.